in this turbulent world that we live in, uh, filled with injustice and evil that we've witnessed in these, these last few weeks, uh, sin and suffering, we, can, we witness it all the time, sin and suffering, it is essential for the Christian to be anchored in Christ and the great salvation that, that, that he has won for us. And so that's the big idea of Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, really, really, I think it's kind of the big idea of the book. That's why we've titled this series, uh, An Anchor for the Soul. So, uh, you know, I have, I have a tattooed on my arm. That's how committed I am to this sermon series. That's not really true. There's a much more meaningful story to the tattoo on my arm, but I do have Hebrews 6.19 and an anchor on my forearm. You can't see it probably, but, uh, but it's there. But we, we need to have Christ as our anchor, to be anchored and rooted in him and the salvation that he has won for us. We, we need to see what, what a great salvation that we have in Christ in order to weather the storms of this life. And the reality is that there, there is no end there is no end to looking into the wonder and the greatness and the glory of the gospel. We never cease to, to stop uncovering good news there. As we gaze upon the person of Christ, his, his divinity and his humanity, as we gaze upon his work of salvation, his perfect and sinless life, his death and resurrection, his ascension and his continuing intercession for us on our behalf, as we gaze into the gospel, we find ourselves increasingly anchored in Jesus, increasingly abounding with hope in the midst of a hopeless world, increasingly enjoying and glorifying God with our lives lived for him. That's kind of the aim and the heart of, of Hebrews chapter 2. And as we come to these closing verses, as a means of, of fixing our gaze more firmly on the person and work of Christ, the author tells us what we are delivered from, what we are delivered by, and what we are delivered into. That's what we're going to seek to unpack as we walk through this passage today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and, and wherever you're at, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your, your pursuit of us. As we just read, it, it was not for angels that you sent your son to come and rescue and claim for you, but it was for us. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to come to claim us, to, to take on our human nature, to be made like us for us, to, to live to endure, to suffer in our place, that you might deliver us 
from our enemies. Holy Spirit, we pray that you enable us to to fix our gaze, to be anchored and rooted in Christ more and more today, that we might live for the glory of God increasingly. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Well, first we're, we're told here what we are delivered from, but before we get right into that, it's important to know the emphasis on, on angels and kind of remi- remind ourselves that, that we've been talking a lot about angels through much, much of chapter one and here through chapter two. And, and there's another mention of angels in this passage here in verse 16, where it says, uh, for, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Right. This is a verse we might quickly kind of pass over and say, okay. Uh, but, but this verse is telling us something wonderful. That Jesus came and lived and died and was raised not to rescue and help angels, but to rescue and help his people. Uh, the true offspring of Abraham, we're told throughout the New Testament, are... The, are the children of faith, right? The, those who put their hope and trust in, in Jesus Christ. That's who Jesus came to help, not angels. It's subtle, but, but there's another reality and, and truth that's implied here, that before humans were ever created, let alone before the fall of man and uh, the, the, the entrance of human sin into this world, before that, there were certain angels who had fallen, who had rebelled against God. The devil, Satan himself, uh, led that rebellion. He's a fallen angel. That's what the Bible tells us. It tells us that there are other angels who listened to Satan and and rebelled against God with him, and they also are fallen. Uh, There's something wonderful for us to grasp here. Human beings are fallen. Certain angels are fallen. But the astounding good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ didn't come to redeem and rescue angels. He came only to rescue and redeem the offspring of Abraham, the children of faith, the people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption is, is not offered to fallen angels. And, and as to why that is, the Bible kind of leaves it as a mystery. But the wonder I hope that you see is, is that the gospel comes to us. It's for you. It's, it's for us. 1 Peter 1.12 tells us that angels actually long to look into the, the fullness and the, the glory of the gospel. In fact, according to the Bible, it, it seems that angels look down on humanity hoping to better understand the gospel. In fact, in Ephesians 3, it, it says that it, it is the church who, who teach angels the manifold wisdom of God. This, this should make us simply pause and just kind of let the weight of that sink in. God loves you this much that for you, not for angels, he sent his son. Jesus loves you this much that for you, not for angels, he came and suffered in your place. How, how great is this salvation and, and what amazing love God has for us. We see here though in this passage more about what we are delivered from. Uh, a three-headed monster 
uh, of an enemy, if you will, our, our, our true enemy, Satan, sin, and death. We're going to start and, and kind of work in, in the reverse order of how they re- appear in the passage. So we're going to start with sin. Uh, sin might so- sometimes simpl- simplistically just be defined as, as disobeying God. After all, sin entered the world when the first man and the first woman disobeyed God's one commandment, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But even before the act of disobedience comes the desire for disobedience. And so sin is more than just mere action. It involves the will. It involves, it involves the heart. Uh, it's rebellion against God's rightful rule over our hearts and our lives at, at the soul level, from the depths of our being. It is desiring to serve self over God, to choose the kingdom of me over the kingdom of God. John Frame says it like this uh, in his uh, systematic theology. He says, so sin is a radical disruption in the core of our being. And sin, we, we turn from God's good command, commandments, his kingdom and glory, faith and love. It embraces rebellious disobedience, the kingdom of Satan, and, and evil attitudes, hatred, immorality, strife, jealousy, anger, envy, and so on. And sin sin brings with it our second enemy. It's just penalty, the penalty of death. Death is the sobering reality that we all face, yet, yet so often so many of us functionally act like we're immune to it, like it's not gonna happen to us. Or at least we try to avoid thinking about it. So, so we keep death hidden from our faces. We, we reserve death for hospitals and nursing homes and we just choose not to go to those places so that we don't have to see it. Yet no matter how much we try to avoid it and not think about it, the reality of death is inevitable. And in the midst of a pandemic, moments like this, we're, we're met face to face with that reality again. We're all going to die. Verse 15 speaks of enslavement to the, to the fear of death. And the, and the believers to whom this, this book of, of Hebrews was originally written were people death was staring in the face. They're, they're facing intense persecution. Martyrdom is a very, very likely reality for many of them. It's a very real possibility. There's, there's great comfort though for the Christian when it comes to thinking on death. But apart from Christ, death is absolutely terrifying. You see, for there's a a deep inner reality, a a sense at the level of our soul that every one of us has done wrong. Every one of us has done wrong. You may not want to admit that, but you feel it if you give yourself time to really search your soul. And, And every one of us will die. And because every one of us has done wrong and every one of us will die, every one of us will give an account to God. Romans 2, 15 and 16 talks about how that's, that's written on our hearts. It's written on our souls, that reality. That's the fear of death that enslaves. Even if outwardly you deny it, even if outwardly you deny that God exists, uh, death is still terrifying. Now, now, you may not be walking around terrified. Uh, your, your fear uh, your slavery to death may manifest itself in denial or escape or panic or simply turning to various pursuits and pleasures to try to numb yourself from it. But there's no real way to escape it on your own. For you were born to live forever and you will 
You will live forever, either with God in glory or eternally separated from God in eternal, in eternal punishment and torment. This is the just penalty that we deserve. Eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal torment and punishment in hell. That's the just penalty that we deserve because of our sinful rebellion against God. We can deny it, but we cannot escape it. The final enemy that's mentioned here is, is of course, the devil, right? Mentioned in verse 14. Satan, the devil, is our enemy. The, the Bible tells us that Satan is our, our chief enemy. Verse 14 tells us that it's the devil who holds us captive by the power of sin and death. And in our culture, a lot of people find it, you know, talking about Satan to be maybe a little hokey, sounds a little primitive, haven't we advanced beyond believing in such things? Uh, but like we should with anything, we need to let the Bible inform our understanding uh, of, of the truth and the reality of Satan. And the reality is that the Bible is very, very much uh, affirming that he's real, that he exists, that he, that he seeks to destroy and devour people to keep them from God, right? First Peter 5, 8 tells us to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Jesus talks about Satan. He calls the devil a liar in John 8, 44, and the father of lies. Satan delights in twisting God's word and preventing the gospel from being preached. He's a murderer. He's a destroyer. He, he's a tempter. He's an accuser. Satan is maliciously and comprehensively opposed to God's being, to God's character, to God's purposes, to God's people, and to God's glory. This is who, this is what we are delivered from. Satan, sin, and death. Jesus destroys Satan and delivers us from slavery to sin and death. How? Well, we find the answer as we see what we are delivered by. And as we've seen throughout chapter two, the big focus continues to be on the incarnation of Christ. Uh, the word becoming flesh, the eternal son of God taking on human nature. This focus is seen again throughout this short passage. Look at the beginning of verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things flesh and blood. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Jesus determined to, to rescue not angels, but human beings from Satan, sin, and death took upon himself our human nature the nature that belongs to you and me. That's, that's the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, right? The son of God taking on flesh and blood. And these statements we see here are pointing us right away to the uniqueness of Christ. He came into the world in a very different way than anyone else who's ever been born into this world. He doesn't come from uh, out of hum huma humanity, he, he comes into humanity from the outside. He added human nature to his divinity, to himself, which leads us to this great and central mystery concerning Christ. He is both fully God and fully man. His arrival, his birth is unique. It was a virgin birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
The virgin birth is not some optional doctrine that we can take or leave. It's essential to the person and work of Christ. It's essential. The eternal Son of God who is the creator and sustainer of all things in this amazing and mysterious manner was born of a virgin that he might rescue you and make you children of God. He had to come and take upon himself flesh and blood to become a partaker of it. He humbled himself to take our nature upon himself. We, we have to start with the, the glorious wonder that, that that baby born in Bethlehem was God incarnate, the word made flesh. That's, that's where it starts. That's where the work of Christ in our redemption starts. In order to secure our rescue, he had to take our nature upon himself. For a little while, as we read last week, he had to be made lower than the angels. He came from outside our world into it in order to save us. When it says in verse 17 that he had to be make it, made like his brothers in every respect, we really need to make sure what, we, what we're saying and what we understand is being said in the, in the fact that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. What was that referring to? Well, every respect cannot mean that he took on sinful nature because that contradicts what we see very plainly stated to us in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 that that Jesus was in every way tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus did not sin. There was no evil in him. He is his nature was perfect. It was pure. Every respect refers then to his, his human state and condition apart from sin. It's a declaration that Jesus was no phantom presence, right? He wasn't just an, uh, an aberration. He, he was no angel. He was truly man, flesh and blood, as well as being truly God, fully God and fully man. The focus here in this passage is on his humanity, and that the fact that he lived a truly human life with a full range of human experience. And we see that testified to us as you read through the gospel accounts. You see the humanity of Christ on display. You see that Jesus, he gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He gets weary. In John chapter 4, the encounter, wonderful encounter with the woman at the well. Uh, it's a beautiful account. But, but it takes place because of Why? Jesus is tired, he's weary, and he sits down by the side of a well while his disciples go into town to get food for them. Jesus got tired, exceedingly sleepy, right? We read in Mark 4 that Jesus is, is so tired and so starved for sleep that he's sleeping in the stern of the boat in the middle of a violent storm in which all of his disciples are certain they're all going to die. He took, on, he took on flesh and blood and, and experienced weariness, hunger, and thirst. We read of Jesus as a boy growing in wisdom and stature, right? It's clear that, that he was taught by his mother and by Joseph. It's, tr it's clear that he grew from a baby into a man. It, it, it's clear that he experienced learning. We read about how Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, how he loved the rich young ruler. And John, right, referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus was the savior of the world, the savior of all who come to him. 
Yet you see he experienced a deeper level of connection, friendship, and brotherhood with John. Is that not the human experience, that we have deep friendships? Jesus experienced grief and sorrow. We see him weeping at the death of Lazarus. We see him praying in the garden of Gethsemane and telling his disciples that his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. These are evidences of his humanity, that he was truly man, body and soul. Jesus spent a lot of time reading the Old Testament scriptures, meditating on them, quoting them. We, we regularly see Jesus rising before it's, it's light very early in the morning to go to a solitary place to pray. As he prepares to choose his disciples, he spends an entire night in prayer. Jesus put his trust in God. He says continually throughout the gospels that he only says and does what the father has told him. Jesus was truly man, a man of faith. He was truly God. This is the extraordinary mystery of the incarnation. One person, fully God, fully man, one person with these two natures, but those two natures are are separate and distinct. He is truly God and truly man. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, uh, I'm not going to read it, but you, you, you should go read it today, uh, teaches us that, that while living here as a man, Jesus did not cease to be God. He was still God, the eternal Son of God, but he deliberately humbled himself to, to be and to live as a man, not making use of the prerogatives of his deity. This is the great humility of Christ. Though he was God, he took upon himself human nature and lived as a man, keeping the law of God perfectly, living in perfect dependence upon God the Father, that he might become the captain, the founder, the author of our salvation. The virgin birth of Christ is an essential part of all this because he did not take upon himself sinful human nature. But as Romans 8.3 says, he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. The author of Hebrews puts great focus on, on the humanity of Christ here. For Jesus had to be fully man to rescue us from Satan's sin and death. Verse 17 that, that Jesus, tells us that Jesus came to be a, a faithful high priest for us. And a high priest represents the the people of God in the presence of God, where he pleads and offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to bring forgiveness for them. The law said that the high priest had to be like his brothers. So Jesus became like us in his incarnation, that he might become our merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiations, uh, propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation, there's a, there's a fun word that we don't use every day, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's over our heads, right? We, we just need to seek to understand what it means. I've heard one pastor say, if you can learn how to order at Starbucks, you can learn theology. And just, it's just learning words and their definitions. So let's seek to understand what this word propitiation means. The, the high priest in the Old Testament would again make sin offerings on behalf of the people so that their sins could be forgiven. So, so why did Jesus have to become like us, taking on our nature in order to be a high priest for us? Because the offering that he had to give was himself. 
He needed to be a human high priest so that he could lay down his life, not only as the priest who makes the offering, but as the very offering that he made. Look again in verses 14 and 15. So since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus strips the devil of his power by making propitiation for our sins. Propitiation simply means that Jesus takes away God's anger, God's wrath that was meant for us, that was against us in our sin. Jesus, fully God and fully man, he goes to the cross completely innocent and without any sin. And yet there he goes to die in our place and bear the full weight of the punishment that our sins deserve. At the cross, the wrath of God that was meant for us fell on him and Jesus absorbed it all so that there was no more wrath, no more punishment for those who put their faith in him. His sacrifice diverted God's wrath from us onto him. That's, that's what propitiation means. God's holiness and, and, and justice were satisfied there on the cross and his love and grace beautifully displayed. God loved you enough to put his own son forward to live the sinless life that you never could and die the death that you deserve in your place. Jesus took on your human nature and he lived the righteous life you couldn't so that he might offer himself in your place. It was not cosmic child abuse. The scriptures say that he did it for the joy that was set before him. So that by his death, he might destroy the devil and deliver you from Satan's sin and death. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the late British preacher, uh, wrote this. He says, this is God's way of destroying the devil and silencing him forever. The devil is God's accuser. If God had forgiven mankind in any other way, the devil would have objected and would have reminded God of the holiness of his own character and would have said, how can you forgive sin? But Christ crucified is the eternal answer to the devil. The enemy is thus rendered speechless. Again, if God had redeemed mankind without the incarnation, without sending his son into the world, the devil might have said, the law has been violated. How can you justify man since man has not kept the law? But the life Jesus Christ lived as man silenced the devil at that point also. The man, Christ Jesus, has rendered perfect obedience to the law of God and thus to God himself. He failed at no point. Thus, through the incarnation and the life and the suffering and the death of Jesus, the devil has been silenced, his works have been destroyed, and he himself finally shall suffer eternal perdition. We have been delivered, friends, by the incarnation, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the glorious good news of the gospel. But believe it or not, it's not all. It's not all. For the passage also shows us the wonder of what we are delivered into. It is all too wonderful for us to think on the reality of what it means that, that Jesus had delivered you and I from enslavement to, Satan, enslavement to Satan, sin, and death. That he came for 
not for angels, but for us, but for you, right? That he, he humbled himself to take on flesh and live in your place. That he willingly, for the joy that was set before him, suffered and endured the cross for you, to rescue you, to deliver you. That's all too wonderful when, when you think about what you're facing, what, you're, what, what, you're fa- what you were facing apart from him. But then, then we read verse 18, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, in his humanity, Jesus understands what it is to suffer and face temptation. He understands. And if you think on it, there's a reality that that Jesus actually understands what it is to suffer through temptation more than you and I do because he suffered through it to its full extent without ever once giving in to sin. He endured it all the way through without giving in. What's being said here is that Jesus has shared your experience. He has faced temptation, being tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. That he shared your experience. He's, he's entered into suffering with you. He's entered into to grief with you. Right? He, he's grieved the, the loss of dear friends and loved ones. Jesus has suffered deep personal betrayal. He knows what it is to walk through that. He's experienced injustice and, and hatred. He, he understands what you're going through. He understands what you've already experienced. And, he, and because he understands, he, he's able to sympathize. Even more through faith in Jesus, you are granted access to ongoing help. Put that all together. What do you have? Shared experience, understanding, sympathy, access to help. Jesus delivers you. He delivers me. He delivers us into relationship. He doesn't just pay our debt, set us free from Satan, sin, and death. He doesn't just simply secure our forgiveness and then leave us to manage things from there on our own. No, he saves us into relationship. He calls us brothers. He makes it so that we are adopted as children of God. He continues after his ascension. He's seated there at the Father's right hand in the throne room of heaven. He continues to intercede on your behalf to claim us as his own. You see what this means? It means that you are not left on your own. You are not alone. Even when we are in pandemic mode and some of us are are locked down in our houses and we haven't seen anyone for a long time, you are not alone. Jesus is with you. He's with you in whatever you're going through, always. And as you rely upon him, he's able to keep you from falling into sin. And when inevitably in in our fallenness we do sin and fail, He's there to meet us with grace upon grace. He's there to meet us and sustain us by his grace until the day we see him face to face. It is true that while Jesus has defeated Satan, sin and death by his life, death and resurrection, that Satan remains on the loose. We still die a physical death 
And sin has not yet been finally and fully eradicated, right? We still sin. So how can we say we've been delivered? How are we delivered from death if we still die? If all of us are still gonna die, how are we delivered from death? Well, we're delivered because we remember what Jesus says in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. That though you die in me, you live forever. Though man die, if you believe in Jesus, you have life everlasting. Nothing can take that from you. And that frees us to not be afraid of death. Not in the sense that we're careless, that we, we, we're, we're testing all the limits of how close can we get to dying without, without doing it, uh, but rather that we can be fearless and know that some things are, are worth more than, than death, right? That, that, the, that the eternal state of people's souls valuable, are, are more valuable than our earthly lives. And so we, we must share the gospel. We must find ways to connect with people. We must find ways to serve, to stand up for God's justice, to stand up for, for his righteousness, to be ambassadors of his work of restoration and reconciliation, even in the face of opposition. We have life in him that even death cannot take from us. That's how we're free. You know, how, can we, how can we say that, that we've been delivered, if, 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 that the devil has been destroyed if he's still on the loose? Well, the reality is, is that the only ammunition the devil ever had the only thing he ever had that actually works is unforgiven sin. That's the only, that's the only weapon he has is our sin. All, all Satan can do, and he, he will absolutely fight like hell to do this. All he can do is try to keep you sinning and to keep you away from the one who forgives sin. So he'll accuse you, Christian, that you are your sin Uh, You better not share that. You better not take that to the Lord. You better not take that to God's people. He will accuse you. He will seek to separate you from the grace that you have in Jesus. He will seek to separate unbelievers, to keep them opposed to the gospel, to keep them separated from Christ, to keep them in their sin. All he can do is try to keep you sinning and keep you away from the one who forgives sin. Because if your sin is forgiven, and the wrath of God has been turned away from you, then the devil is disarmed. The one deadly, lethal tactic he has is to accuse you of sin, and to keep you sinning, and to keep you away from Jesus, who forgives sin and removes the wrath of God. But if you have put your hope in Christ... If you are in Christ, then your sins are forgiven. And and the wrath of God has been removed from you by Jesus. And you now stand righteous, clothed in the perfection of Christ before God. That's all yours by faith in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The devil is rendered absolutely powerless and he cannot destroy you. And Jesus is with you. He is with you. You have access to him by relationship, to commune with him, to cry out to him for help in the face of temptation, in the face of the, the enemy's accusation. 
to fill your heart with, you, with his word, to hear him speaking to you, that you have been delivered once and for all by his finished work. You've been set free from Satan's sin and death. Jesus is available to you and he understands more than anyone else exactly what you are facing, what you are experiencing. And he is able, he's willing to give you what you need to endure to the end. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. The question for you and I today is this, are you experiencing the rescue that Jesus has won for you? Are you living in freedom from Satan, sin, and death? Are you pressing into Jesus in in vibrant relationship with him? The, The message of the gospel is not, here's a bunch of stuff for you to do so you can get God on your side. It is not, here's what you can do to get yourself right with God. The wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus loved you enough to come into this world, to take on flesh and blood, to live for you, to die for you, to deliver you once and for all from Satan, sin, and death, and to deliver you into an ongoing, vibrant relationship with himself. That in that relationship, you might experience the fullness of real freedom from the fear of death. You might experience real victory over sin. Then increasingly you find yourself, by God's grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, able to say no to sin and say yes to God. As you press in and you find strength and comfort and counsel in Jesus in the face of your temptation, then you might rejoice in that relationship in the wonderful news of Romans 16, 20 that tells us the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet, he will crush him. Are you experiencing that? Friends, the the invitation isn't to get busy doing stuff to prove yourself to God. The invitation is to give yourself to the one who has done it all for you and enjoy his love and his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see your great love for us? That it is not for angels that you seek to redeem, but that you came after us. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh and blood and entering into our human experience. Thank you for living the sinless life that we couldn't. Thank you for offering yourself, dying to deliver us from Satan, sin, and death. Holy Spirit, would you assure us of all that Christ has won for us? And would you press us into Jesus to find help in our fight against sin and encouragement to keep living for God's glory and praise? We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.